welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Welcome to episode number four of the podcast. I'm in El Salvador this week talking with libertarian, Austrian economist, and Bitcoiner Stefan Levera. Now, Stefan was a speaker at the Free Cities Foundation conference Liberty in Our Lifetime, which was held in Prague in October. And afterwards, he wrote an excellent article for Bitcoin magazine, pointing out the striking parallelism between the Bitcoin movement and the Free Cities movement. As you will see, Stefan is a natural advocate for Free Cities. He recently voted with his feet, as we say, and left his home country of Australia to move to Dubai. And we discussed the rationale behind this in detail in this conversation. We also talk in depth about the pandemic and consequent lockdowns and the importance in this day and age of what Stefan calls flag theory. The idea of insulating oneself against unfriendly governments by establishing homes in multiple jurisdictions around the world. Stefan's case for Bitcoin is highly compelling and he sees it as humanity's best shot at creating real and long-lasting liberty on earth. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure you will too. So it just leaves me to say sit back, relax and please enjoy my conversation with Stefan Levera. Welcome, Stefan. Many of our listeners won't know you because you're um, very well known in the Bitcoin community and possibly the libertarian community, I would I would say. But for those of, for those people that don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit of background? Sure. So thank you for inviting me. And yeah, my name is Stefan Levera. I am mostly known for my Bitcoin and Austrian economics focused podcast. It's a self-titled show. I also work at Swan Bitcoin. But in terms of who I am and where I sort of came from, I have been a long-time libertarian since about 14 or 15 years old. I was into liberty, liberty-minded uh, aspects of the world and also libertarian economics, and I found Austrian economics. And so I came from that world and then stumbled across Bitcoin, and once it was explained to me the right way, then that just became, you know, that was just a massive tool for me because I well, it was a massive uh, it gave so much more hope to me because up until then I thought, ah, oh, there's not really that much hope for liberty in our lifetimes. Yeah, we can try to convince people about liberty and libertarianism, but the reality is very few people, it, it, it's not a very electorally popular strategy, right? Because you're teaching this message of personal responsibility. You're saying, no, the state should not do that. No, the state should not regulate this. Taxes are wrong. We should minimize them or eliminate them if possible. So it's just a hard message to sell just fundamentally to the average person um and so yeah just just out of interest how do you become how did you know you were a libertarian at 14 that's interesting is it something you consciously thought or did you just rebel from your parents let's say (laughs) so i mean to be clear like for me it was more like my first exposure to mises daily articles back then 
it was via some IRC channel. So I was in a politics channel, an Australian politics channel, and this guy kept linking to Mises Daily articles. Uh, nowadays, I think it's called Mises Wire, but basically it's their short articles. And so that was my first exposure to Austrian economics, libertarian thought. And at the first time, at the start, I thought, oh, this is crazy. Wouldn't there be gangs like roaming in the, you know, all the standard questions that you ask. And then over the next few years, I, be- I started to see oh, this actually makes a lot more sense than what they're teaching me at school. The high school economics, high school business studies, legal studies, all these things that they were teaching at school, the Austrian economists and libertarians just made so much more sense to me. And so over those few years, I became a libertarian. And so I would say by the time I got to, like I would say I had that first exposure around 14 or 15. By the time I got to about 16 or 17, yeah, I I would have considered myself a libertarian. And then probably by about 18 or 19, I was into anarcho-capitalism. So I thought, yes, ideologically or theoretically, this would be the best thing. Now, do I believe it's going to happen in my lifetime? Maybe not. But, you know, if you asked me what would be the best we can reasonably do, I think the anarcho-capitalist system is, is, is the best. So does that mean that your family were particularly interested in those kind of things to be, to be influenced at that at younger age? I mean... Uh, my mum didn't tell me anything about libertarianism when I was 14. Uh, I, I started discovering those kind of things when I got to university. There was no, no, no talk about it at all. So. Yeah, so for me, I mean, I didn't really try to proselytize to my family about, about it. I mean, a little bit, but I would say my parents were slightly right-leaning, but they're not like out-and-out libertarian people, but I would say they were slightly right-leaning. But I mean, anyway. even just talking about politics at that age or, or thinking about political theory or, or ideologies or whatever, how, how come that, that was something you were exposed to? Is there something to do with Australia? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, for whatever reason, I just was interested to chat about some of those ideas and stumbled across libertarianism and the Mises Institute and things like this. And so then... Yeah, basically, it just, uh, but at the same time, I thought I was alone. I was, because to put the context, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, thinking, oh, I'm probably one of the only ones around here, so I'm just on my own out here, right? And so I saw some of these quote unquote civil libertarian groups, and you might hear a mention of them in the news, but they tended to be more like left's libertarian, sort of, or sort of libertarian, but more civil rights, not from that, let's say, that Austro libertarian private property rights view. So, yeah, so in my mind, I thought I was on my own. And then when the Ron Paul campaign of 08 happened, I think that was when we saw a bit of a resurgence. And so I was sort of like, oh, actually, maybe there are some other people who think a bit like me. And I knew, of course, in America, there were people like me. But in Australia, I thought, oh, well, I'm kind of on my own out here. Now, I did later stumble across other Australian libertarians, and then I got connected to the Australian libertarian scene. Um, but yeah, for a while, I just thought I was on my own. Um, so that we, no one's in the dark, um, just in case, uh, can you explain to us what anarcho-capitalism means for you? I think a lot of people might be quite scared by the word anarcho. Right, and so anarcho-capitalism basically means a fully free market, fully privatised everything, and that means even privatised law, private courts, private roads, of course, private security, private national defense, or if, even if the concept of national defense doesn't quite make sense, but you get the rough idea, uh, territorial defense, let's say. Uh, and it's basically that recognition that if the market is better at creating food or cars, then why do we need the state to produce law and to produce the those outcomes? And for me, 
this view of anarcho-capitalism is not a utopian one. It's not saying, oh, the world is going to be hunky-dory and it's this Pollyanna-ish view. No, there will still be murderers and rapists and thieves and everything. It's just that we, it'll be less bad, right? I can, I, that's how I think of it, right? It's going to be imperfect, but it'll be better than what we have now. Now, to be clear, do I think we're ever going there in our lifetimes? Maybe not. But the best we can probably achieve is something like this whole free private cities idea or something like this idea of people who engage in flag theory, people who, of course, use Bitcoin as a parallel financial system. I think some of these ideas are interesting to me. And that's, of course, where, you know, we met through all of the free private cities movement and conferences and things. I think that is in practice. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's actually going to drive a more free society. Can you remember where you first, what your, where or when your first touch point with Free Cities was? Or the Free Cities um, Foundation? Because uh, you were a speaker at Liberty in our lifetime this year. So my first exposure, I think one of my followers might have DM'd me saying, hey, you need to check out this Titus Gables book. And that was when I read Free Private Cities. So his book about this whole topic. And I interviewed him back, oh, this is maybe three or four years ago. I interviewed Titus on my show, and this is like episode, I can't remember the exact number, maybe 161, 163, around there. And at that point, I'd, I saw it because, so in the for those people who don't know, in the Bitcoin world, there's this meme of Bitcoin citadels, right? Now, it came from an early Reddit post, I believe in 2013 or 14, and it was a bit of a dystopian vision. So the vision at that point was something like, oh, you know, Bitcoin has taken over, but actually every well-known wealthy Bitcoiner is being hunted down and therefore they need to go into these citadels to protect themselves and otherwise, you know, you're stuck out in the wastelands and it's kind of like that movie Judge Dredd where there are people out in the wastelands and you're either out in the wastelands or you're in the nice big city. And so that was where this citadel meme came from. And so I started signing off my podcast as a bit of a joke as like, a, hey, I'll see you in the citadels. And so everyone has their own view of what is a citadel, right? But I had that idea and I thought, hey, actually, this free private city thing is kind of, it's almost like very related to this idea of a Bitcoin Citadel. So then I had this idea, oh, let, let, let me get let me get Titus on the show and talk to him about it and let's have a chat and discuss this idea. Are free private cities, are they like a Bitcoin Citadel? And now I know even in the in the free, free, free private cities movement, people like Rahim talk about this and obviously Titus talks about this and there are people talking about this kind of idea. Is there a relation? Is there a connection here? Is it a similar audience, let's say. So, go on then. Tell me what your version of a citadel is. Forget the anything you knew from the free private cities lot. You know, when you envisage the future uh, the, under a Bitcoin standard, let's say, what is a Bitcoin citadel? Or what so, is a citadel? Yeah, I would say the, the typical way most people are thinking about it is this idea. It's like privately owned land, a privately owned small city, small state. And basically, it's the citadel owner's rules. You opt into those when you go into when you go into the city, and people. It's his responsibility to provide some level of security for that state, and maybe he provides basic services, and you pay him a small amount, but it's more like a fee for service. And then you know that situation gives you a little bit better rights, or at least economic and other freedom. Uh, and so it's it's a way to let's say, shield yourself from the broader fiat world is kind of the rough idea. Um, and so, yeah, you can sort of see there are some parallels there with the free private cities people. You're, I suppose, 
quite an interesting um, uh, case for me specifically because you have actually moved to Dubai from Australia. Yeah. Which um, I suppose, what's your experience in Dubai then compared to where you came from? And also the reasons why you moved to Dubai uh, are they are they playing out in real time for you? Are they working for you? So, firstly, yes, I, I'm I'm in, enjoying it in Dubai. My wife and I are there, and we are having a great time. I think 2020 changed a lot of things for me. So, if you had asked me this question 2019, I would have said, "Oh, Tim, I'm probably going to die in Australia. I'm probably just going to live in Australia, and that's you know, I'm just going to do everything there, right? Because I was while I was born in Sri Lanka, I was I went to Australia when I was two years old and I was raised there. So I just, for all intents and purposes, I was an Australian who was just going to live and, you know, die in Australia. 2020 really changed all of that because then it made it a lot more clear to me that, hey, we're paying high taxes. I can't even leave the country. And I'm being stopped from doing my own, getting involved in my own industry, which is the Bitcoin industry, because they were inviting me for conferences and things and some of these events were still running and I was literally trapped inside the country. I was still stuck. And so that was what really shifted my mind and then made me think, you know what, maybe I should turn my eye elsewhere. And I think what happens for a lot of people is they get stuck in inertia, right? And I can understand this too, because if you have your family and your friends all in one area, it becomes difficult to leave. And so... I think it took the hysteria of 2020 to force me to have that internal discussion and have that internal argument. Actually, is Australia the best place for me going forward? And here's the other point I want to add. I think a lot of people look at other places in the world like, they, like they're 30 or 40 years ago, right? That they don't have decent infrastructure, at least in the large cities, even in the poorer countries, if you are in the larger cities, more or less, you can get good infrastructure, right? You can have, you know, your running water and you can have your high-speed internet and you can have various things that you come to expect. And where I think a lot of people have this idea that, oh, the quality of life there is bad or whatever. For us, I was, you know, traveling around for a little bit, but I think Dubai was the best choice for us because of low taxes, so zero personal income tax there in Dubai. And depending on your company structure, you can either be paying zero or I think 9% if you have a mainland corporation there. And so it's a massive, massive win. And here's the other thing. So for those people who, you know, if you're a, if you're a liberty-minded person listening, you might have read the book, The Sovereign Individual. Now, I I'm going to butcher the statistic, but basically there's a stat where, where they point out based on the compound interest if you save $5,000 every year in tax payment, compounded over 30 or 40 years, that it, just, it works out to like $10 million for every $5,000. It's just some ridiculous number of money. And it made me realize, well, hang on. Here I am in my early, now mid-30s. If I get out and save this money in terms of tax savings, by the time I'm 60 or 70, it's a massive saving. And I could direct those funds into other things that I believe in, other things I care about. And could I still have a good quality of life? Yeah, I could. And I think it's important to take ourselves out of this idea of home country bias. And people do this in an investing sense too, because just think about right now, if you're invested into various ETFs, a common thing people do is they bias to their home country. So for example, if you're in Australia, it's a common thing that you might be biased 30% or something in terms of Australian equi equities. Now, what percentage of the Australian equity market is the global stock market. Actually, it's like 2 or 
but Australians are invested like 30%. So you get this whole, this concept of home country bias applies in so many ways. And that got, and I, I was already used to thinking about that from a personal finance and investing perspective, because I would be reading books and these people, finance guys would be saying, hey, hang on, you know, think about this home country bias idea. And so the same kind of idea applies to where you live. And of course, where we're talking about now, it kind of goes down this flag theory direction, right? What other places could I go either for a residence or potentially a citizenship or potentially a business setup or set up a bank account or have a property or all these things that you could potentially be doing. And so 2020 was that year where I was basically doing that research and thinking, okay, I need my escape plan, right? I need a way to get out of here because I just, I can't take this anymore. What um, something that occurred to me because I I did uh, a citadel hunt myself with my family. We 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 left uh, Wales where I'm from uh, during the pandemic, and we ended up a year on the road. We came to Mexico, El Salvador, America, went to a few places. What I discovered in the end was that my wife found it very difficult to leave home, and in at, and as a result, we've ended up back at home. Um, is that something you have had any difficulties with? And if so, how, how, how did you persuade your wife that moving to Dubai was the right thing? Uh, well, so I think maybe my circumstances are a little bit different because I met my wife while I had left Australia. And part of when, when I was talking to her, just to make sure that she was on the same page, I was saying, look, you need, you know, you like, I'd love to get with you, but you, you need to be comfortable with us potentially traveling around. Right. Um, And so I guess part of that was like it was part of the upfront way we spoke um, about it. So, look, I think maybe there are certain circumstances that made it work for me. So part of that is also that Sri Lanka right now is going through a hard time, that that there's not a lot of economic opportunity. So a lot of people who are younger, let's say millennials and Gen Z, if they can get out, they are. They are. They're trying to get out because there's just not a lot of economic opportunity there. So there are, it, it's sort of understood that, yeah, you know, if you need to go overseas to make money, do that because there's not a lot of opportunity there in the, in the island. So I think that also helped in a way, just the circumstances. Now, of course, you know, your, fa- your family life and your circumstances are different from mine. Um, I don't have kids yet. I've got a kid on the way though. But um, so basically we chose Dubai for a few reasons, right? Low tax, good location in terms of easy to travel to Sri Lanka, um, good infrastructure, safetyness. Dubai is in probably in the top five cities, safety worldwide. I think Abu Dhabi is basically top. And I think Dubai is one of the safest cities literally on earth that you can walk around at night and not be so worried about getting mugged or things like this. So these were some of the factors in our mind. And I think also that there was there were other Bitcoiners there as well. So we have our Bitcoiner community there. And so I think that helped us automatically find a friends group and automatically have our little community. So, you know, wherever you go, I think people want to find some kind of community, at least where they share ideas and at least mostly see eye to eye on things. So I think those are some of the aspects about Dubai that made it make sense for us. Something I learned from talking to um, the free cities people all over the place is that this whole idea of the citadel is on a spectrum? The, the from at one end you find the sort of tax-free zones, yeah, and at the other end you we've found at least because we've just come from Honduras. Um, there's a place called Prospera there, and that appears to be, in my eyes, 
the most advanced version of what you would call a free city that there is, that's actually being built. And, you know, it's got buildings going up. There are legislations. They've created their own governance model. You know, they've got permission, let's say, from the Honduran government. Um, can you see anything in um, Dubai that you would say, you know, could benefit from sort of moving a little bit further along the spectrum? Or is Dubai good, as far as you're concerned, on their governance model? Yeah, good question. I think Dubai seems to be liberalizing a little bit over the over the years. So even recently, now not an issue obviously because I'm married to my wife, but a few years ago there was a law about not sharing uh, a home or even a bed with somebody who you're not related to or married to. So that's an obvious example where if you were a single person trying to date, now I heard there were basically, it's kind of like people did it anyway and they just kind of tried to stay under the radar so that they didn't get in trouble with the with the law. Um, but recently they changed that. So, so, so certain aspects of Dubai, they are liberalizing. They are trying to make it a little bit easier. Um, but at the same time, there are certain you know aspects you have to accept, right? So the weather, right? It's very hot in Dubai. And especially in that, let's say, April to September time of year, it gets really hot. You know, there's not a lot of green nature stuff like they are trying to work on that too um but i mean if you like beaches there's plenty of those but in terms of people who if you're the kind of person who needs to go hiking and do this kind of stuff it might not be the best place or maybe you need to fly around for that or fly somewhere else right and you know take some of your tax savings and fly somewhere and go do your stuff there and then come back and so you can sort of think of it like you know you, you do have to make certain trade-offs i think and in fairness i think there's something to small states and small cities that perhaps there's a better chance for them to be a good place to set up, whether it's Singapore or, you know, historically Hong Kong before the CCP encroachment. Um, I just think some of these places, they just, it's not a guarantee that they do well, but there's a better chance, there's a better likelihood that with good leadership, as I believe Dubai has for the most part had, it, I think that's why Dubai has come up so quickly and even today represents a very high standard of living if you want it at arguably a cheaper cost, right? So as an example, and you can even objectively look at the numbers. So for yourself or anyone listening, you can look at this website called Numbeo, N-U-M-B-E-O, and they've got a cost of living index. And as an example, I think they index New York to 100. So basically, if you know what how costly it is to live in New York City, that's 100. And then there are certain cities like maybe Zurich or things like that that are even more expensive than New York. And then Dubai is somewhere in like maybe 67 or something like this. So it's, it's cheaper. Um, obviously, it doesn't have the same history or the same aspects of like New York, obviously. But you can... And then you add on the layer of paying zero personal income tax. You're earning more. You're spending less it's just it's just a massive thing economically so i think that's another aspect that even if you're fam coming back to family you might decide hey you know what especially if you're earning enough i'd rather fly my family to come visit me and do it like that so i think there are ways to get around or mitigate some of these aspects but it is very person by person dependent i uh, up until the pandemic i was i used to travel to the uae twice a year i had a scholarship in Sharjah which is next to yeah and my my overarching my overall feeling of the Middle East is I would struggle to live there on account of the 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 environment 
And I, I do like it and I love, I mean, it's an unbelievably luxurious place. It's, it's really quite astonishing how luxurious it is, if, if it, you know, for certain people, let's say. But yeah, for me, I would need greenery. I would need those kind of things. I'm wondering whether you had your, set your sights on any other places before you landed on Dubai. So I was looking at low-tax places, obviously. I was thinking, oh, what about um, maybe like Isle of Man or maybe in the Caribbean somewhere or places like this. Um, so I was thinking about some of those or even places in Asia, like potentially there are ways people might look at structuring their income in certain ways that, as an example, if you have your income is, is in a business and it's outside of the country and you don't bring that income into the country, then there are certain rules and aspects. But I thought... You know, the simplest way is to just go somewhere with zero personal income tax and then just, you know, because it, it's a, it, it allows you a certain level of simplicity. Um, so that's why Dubai, um, just because of the simplicity of that and relative low cost of getting your foot in the door in terms of a residency or some kind of setting up a business or things like this. So Was that, it easy? Yeah. Is it easy to get residency in Dubai? I would say relatively. If you have... There are different pathways, obviously. So one is freelancer, another one is set up a company, uh, and another one is buy a property. So they have like a golden visa program if you buy a property above a certain value. And I think they have different tiers of that. Um, so I would say if you just want the cheapest, cheapest way in, probably looking at like a, a freelancer pass or permit uh, via some of the different organizations that offer that. And you can find that based on your occupation and what you're doing, you can set up using a freelancer permit and have your wife as a dependent or your spouse as a dependent. And then that's one way. Another way is, yeah, set up a company. And that might be, I, I can't recall, I can't recall the exact numbers, but let's say if you're setting up a company, it might be anywhere from like ten to $30,000 um, and you are paying an, uh, a licensing fee because that's part of how Dubai has low tax, right? So you basically, you're paying a licensing fee instead of uh, a corporate tax. Although coming soon, if you're a mainland corporation, to be clear, there is going to be a 9% tax. I think it's above about 100,000 USD, something like that. These are just rough numbers, right? Um, but yeah, you get the idea. So there are cheaper ways to get in the door. Um, out of interest, what's the Bitcoin scene like in Dubai? And are the government on board with uh, the notion of Bitcoin? I would say it's... I mean, I, I don't know, like the quote-unquote crypto, there's a bit of a crypto uh, scene. So there's a lot of, basically a lot of shitcoin people there in Dubai, just in general. There, there is a growing Bitcoin scene also. So I recently became an organizer of Bitcoin Dubai. I was an organizer of Bitcoin Sydney back when I was there, which is just a meetup group. And we try to teach people about Bitcoin and, you know, all the typical things. Um, so... How many people are coming along to those kind of meetups? Then? So anywhere from like 50 to 150 like in a bull, if it's kind of a bullish season, we might get more 150 to 200. And in a bear, maybe 50 something, 50 to 100. Um, Did so you, yeah. were you there? Have you just come from Dubai now? Because I'm just interested to know whether, how the sentiment is oh, currently so I mean, in the crypto scene. Yeah, I mean, I was just in LA for Pacific Bitcoin. But prior to that, yeah, I mean, I was in Dubai and we had a meetup and there was probably about 50, 60 people in a bear cycle meetup. Um, and so we'll see what we can do about growing that even in a bear. Um, I think there are some reasons to be bullish though. So for example, one of the members of the ruling family of Dubai, his investment group or family office is called Seed Group. And you might've seen they recently did a deal with Coin Corner from um, Isle of Man to do a Bitcoin, uh, basically 
it's, it seems like they want to do Bitcoin and Lightning payments across their investments, starting in Dubai, because obviously he's from Dubai. So he has some investments and they want to do Bitcoin and Lightning. So if one of the ruling members, you know, one of the members of the ruling family is doing Bitcoin payments, you know, I think it's a good indicator for where they see things. Now, it may be a little bit of a crypto and blockchain sort of scene as opposed to Bitcoin only, but, you know, you have to start somewhere and we'll see. And I think it, it has a lot of the conditions that make sense. So, for example, there's no capital gains tax in Dubai. So that's another big factor right because if you have no capital gains tax then it's a lot easier to to do spending and receiving and things like this without crazy complicated accounting um you were a speaker at um liberty in our lifetime which was the free city yep. foundations conference recently and um you wrote a great article in bitcoin magazine all about it i'm going to read out the title here because even the title is great <laughs> finding liberty in parallel bitcoin and the free cities movement so you obviously see a strong correlation between bitcoin and the free cities ethos um can you elaborate a little bit on that and um, maybe start by talking about your experience at the conference and um, what was your overall experience of, of coming to prague I thought it was great. I enjoy going to Prague and it was a really interesting mix because it wasn't only a Bitcoin conference. It was a mix of things. You had people speaking about the philosophy and the theory of some of these aspects. We had people talking about seasteading. We had people talking about Bitcoin. We had people talking about flag theory. We had people talking about intentional communities and just all of these different ways. But I, I really liked that the theme was about parallel structures. And I definitely made that the theme of my talk and even it probably comes through in the article also is this idea of just building out parallel structures that they can't stop. And that's where obviously Bitcoin comes in. That's where, and so many of the other ideas came in. And I think what made it interesting, the whole, the conference interesting was just that there was a, it was a broad church of people who, if you asked them, they probably agreed maybe 80 to 90% of their worldviews were aligned. Now, yes, there were some things around the edges and maybe some would disagree in that, but for the most part, it was mostly libertarians and liberty-minded people all with their own angle of how to do things or how to push push things forward. So that was what was interesting to me. I certainly see a lot of synergy between Bitcoin and the free cities movement. I think, for example, it's a common thing where they will try to shut you down from a fiat perspective. So whether that's PayPal or whether that is Visa, MasterCard, or whether that is the standard fiat banks, or FATF and you know OECD and these kinds of organizations who try to say, look, oh, you're trying to set up some new thing, we're going to grey list you, or we're going to blacklist you and stop anyone else from transacting with you. And obviously, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin fixes this. You can transact with Bitcoin without having to ask permission. You can set up a wallet on your phone today, and I can transact to you right now with relatively low fees and relative ease. So Bitcoin is a natural fit here because if you're trying to set up a free private city and the banking system or the fiat legacy banking system doesn't want to let you, you can say, you know what, I don't need you anyway. We're just going to do it with Bitcoin. And so I think that's an obvious tie-in there. Obviously, I know with uh, Prospera, they, uh, one of the gentlemen from Prospera mentioned Bitcoin is a legal tender or think of it like a de facto legal tender. It's not the only one. They just have no capital gains tax, so you, you can do whatever. Um, so... I, th that's probably the main aspect of it. And I think it also 
even if you're not going to go set up in a free private city, setting up and taking Bitcoin as payment allows you to do this kind of parallel society, this kind of secret society that you could just set up online. It doesn't matter whether you're in America or Zimbabwe or Sri Lanka. You could set up and have your website service selling products, information products, or selling your services and just use software such as BTC Pay Server, which allows you to be your own payment processor. And so I just see a natural tie-in and a crossover there. Uh, it's funny, I think <clears throat> a lot of people, a lot of Bitcoiners are starting to understand that the path to adoption is just that. It's not about Bukele making Bitcoin legal tender in, in his country. It's not about, it's, it's actually about people just accepting it, spending it and taking it and having, para, you know, these parallel sort of societies, financial societies just arising. Um, that's definitely been my experience um, in orange pilling people. The easiest way to orange pill people is to, if they're offering a service, is just to say, okay, accept Bitcoin. And then two things happen. Number one is it's easy. And number two is a market opens up to them of Bitcoiners that they didn't even know existed. And it's it's an astonishing and great thing to see. Um, I wonder, um, from your time at the conference, was there anything you learned there that you didn't know about? from from the free cities movement any ideas concepts even uh, projects that you didn't know oh well i think i had a vague awareness of seasteading but actually seeing some of the talks from the seasteading guys made it a bit more real in my mind about it made it a bit more feasible now being honest it's not personally my cup of tea i wouldn't be the first one to sign up and go live on the sea pod or stay at the sea pod but it made it a bit more feasible and it, it sort of explained I, I sort of heard a bit more of the context around how they deal with various objections and how it might actually work so I, as i understand there was you know obviously the c pod and that idea and then there was this uh, other gentleman i've forgotten the guy's name but he was talking about this idea of gradually starting with everyone living on a boat and then slowly moving you know and then having this like from a theoretical point of view it's really cool right this idea that people can create these platforms out at sea fully free market and just merge or disconnect and reconnect whenever and however they choose such that they've there's this free market platform out there and you know that part is really cool now I, I the parts where you might get a bit more scared are kind of like well what if there's like a big issue out there or what if there's you know tsunamis or if there's like hurricanes or if there's you know people drowning like how do you you know and now maybe some of the answer here is technology maybe some of the answer here is you know economic advancement all kinds of things but it, it at least gave some idea about how it could happen in a gradual step-by-step -step fashion and so that was one aspect i learned a bit more about how the free state project worked as well so obviously as a libertarian i knew of the free state project and i spiritually was a you know hoping they would win hoping they would pull through i'm not an american so for me it didn't really make sense to try to you know become an american to go move to new hampshire but i i wanted the free state project to win right as a libertarian i wanted them to you know have some success and it sounds to me like they've had some success and some, you know, some failures along the way. And from what I understand, they have this, you know, they've got all these people. They've got all these people who have to contribute all this time and effort to that movement. And it may not necessarily bring about libertarian or libertarianism in New Hampshire straight away, just given the size of the population of New Hampshire and the tiny relative number of libertarians. And it takes a lot of activist mindset and a lot of people who are working hard. And 
for all that work, how much extra liberty would they achieve? And so I think that's why for me at the end of it, I think the perhaps the flag theorists have probably the best overall answer right now. And the flag theorists were there, people like, you know, Katie and uh, Plan B Passport and uh, that other organization, I believe they're called Staten Loss. And so they were, I, I categorized them as, okay, they're the flag theorist people. And obviously I have, you know, I'm, I'm sort of doing some of that too. So I think the flag theory people. Can you, can you just elaborate on flag theory just in case that someone doesn't know what you mean? Yeah, sure. So the basic idea is for most people, right, by default, you're born in a certain country. You are a citizen of that country. You are a resident of that country. Your tax residency is there. All your bank accounts are there. You live there. You die there. You're married there. You, you, know, you have your kids there. Everything there. Flag theory is more like this idea of disassociating those things, that maybe you live in one country, but you have a citizenship from another. You have, maybe have a tax resident somewhere else. Maybe your business is set off somewhere else. Maybe you're using a phone number from somewhere else. Maybe you have your banking and your credit card somewhere else, or you're using Bitcoin. It's this idea of disassociating those things. And as I, as I see it, you are selecting the best in the world. Instead of just living through life as a passenger of the accident of our birth, where we were born does not have to be where we die. Where we were born does not have to be where we live, does not have to be where we pay taxes, except if you're an American. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a different story. Um, but that's the basic idea. Flag theory is this idea that you can select better jurisdictions. And so I guess one last idea I would convey there is this idea of geo-arbitrage. So that's this idea that you could go set up either in a low-tax or a low-cost-of-living place or country, but earn a higher income, like a US dollar or a, or a Bitcoin income from somewhere, somewhere else. And so I think that's one of the key ideas is that by using flag theory, you can execute this idea of geo-arbitrage. I would say that's the high-level way I'm thinking of it. Um, if we're talking about flag theory, I suppose we've got to talk about the pandemic because arguably the measures that most countries um, um, implemented during the pandemic potentially put a stop to flag theory have you got an opinion on on that you know is that the, it's, a bit, it's a bit the elephant in the room really um you know what happens when people can't cross borders or what happens when you're blacklisted or what happens when you know your europe's running on a cbdc and you can't move from where you live so i think that's also part of the answer of why it's important to have your backup option before these things go wrong so just like why you should hold some Bitcoin before the financial collapses and before these things go wrong, you want to you wanna think about, should I have a residency somewhere else? Should I even have a passport from somewhere else? And so as an example, if your home country's passport is blocking you from travel, do you have an alternate passport? And historically, a lot of people might have been eligible for even a passport through their legacy or through their um, family tree, basically, to, you know, in Europe and other places where they allow you to do this. So they often did not go through the bureaucracy to get it. But then from post-2020, everyone can understand why it, it, might have well, it might well have been worth your while to go and get those extra passports that you can because that gives you another option. Instead of being stuck, now you have another choice. So it's not perfect. There is no perfect, but it might, it might make it better for you or it might lessen the impact of travel restrictions in that case.
as a um, libertarian, what's your view on passports in general? Because they're a relatively new invention, historically speaking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, what is it, like 120, 130 years ago, they didn't even really exist, right? And, um, and just like many government projects, I'm sure they said, oh, it's only a temporary thing, and then all of a sudden now it's that's the new reality we live in. And so it's unfortunate, but I see it like if it enables you to do the whole flag theory thing, if that, and potentially if that flag theory thing enables you to pay less taxes, isn't it a net win? Is that not a net win for you and your family? And even to the broader liberty movement, are you not denying tax money to the state? Now, I'm saying do it legally, right? Of course, I'm a public name, so I can't be out here telling people, yeah, evade taxes. I have no moral opposition to that. I have a strategic opposition, right? I, obviously, I think taxes are theft, you know, typical libertarian arguments. I just think from a strategic point of view, if you're a public name, you're better off trying to do things legally so that you legally exit the tax, tax system of your current country and go somewhere with, with a better tax situation. And in doing so, aren't you denying your funding to the big welfare and warfare state? That's how they make these things. That's how they pay for the guns and the warfare and all the restrictions. So doing this and pursuing this kind of strategy is aligned with libertarian thought, in my view. So if tax is theft, then how does um, a citadel operate in, in your mind? Upfront fee for service, you know, just like free private cities. It's this idea that, hey, you're here, you know, you pay for these services. We pay, you know, we provide you X, Y, and Z. You pay us this much. That's that. And I think part of it is also this mindset of, encouraging people not to just be a default passenger along life and actually be more intentional about where they live, why they live there, and how they lo how long they stay there. Because that, in a way, helps stop the abuse and the corruption that happens in some of these bigger states. I think what happens is there's a certain inertia to these things. And because of that inertia, people just stay where they are, and it becomes like that story of the frog in the boiling pot that everybody knows they just stay and they become a frog in a boiling pot rather than being intentional and saying hey i don't have to be here i could just leave it, absolutely uh, i'll go back to one of the points i made earlier and because i've experienced this firsthand um when you have a family and and roots and and um immediate family around you it's very difficult to up sticks like that um, it's we're living in interesting times. I have I spent six weeks here in El Salvador um, at the beginning of the year, and I met a lot of refugees here from Canada, ironically, who had left Canada on account of not wanting to take the vaccination. Um, they were ostracized, so they had to get out. And a lot of them came to Mexico, but um, the Bitcoiners came here. And one of my some very good friends of ours is still here now. Um, another interesting story in, in Prague, we met. Um, educational refugees from Sweden you know who, who moved to Prague because it's illegal to to, to, to homeschool in Sweden um, these are strange times we're living in you know is do you have an opinion on the the trajectory that we're currently on this kind of m move towards further authoritarianism um, is that something you see in yourself and is it something that has a, a natural end to it I see it like there are life cycles to these things in a way that sometimes it's like, you know, the microcosm might be, let's say there's a really cool restaurant or bar and no, nobody knows about it. And it's really cool and, you know, really great value and best food or whatever. And you go there and eventually it starts to 
become like everyone goes there, everyone knows that place. And then eventually it's sort of it, the bad side of the life cycle is, you know, now it's overpriced and it's not that great. And maybe the chef has lost the inspiration and the zeal or that maybe they've got new management now. It, it wasn't the same chef or the same manager. The same cycle can happen with countries. And so I think what we're really doing is we're looking out at the world and realizing, ah, oh, actually, I think part, places like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, they've already, they're sort of, I wouldn't say going down because they're all going to explode or whatever. I just say they're going to stagnate a bit, relatively. And I think I view them as relatively stagnating because of all the bad decisions they've made over the last few years. Meanwhile, there are other countries that were relatively open. There are other countries that are arguably hungrier and therefore offering a better deal to people, lower taxes, better freedom, etc. And so it's a matter of choosing your place where you go. Now, yes, you do make trade-offs, right, from a family point of view, or if you are thinking about going nomad, well, okay, it might be harder to do that with pets, as an example. So maybe you don't have pets and that's a trade-off you make, but it gives you more overall freedom and in what's important to you in terms of low taxes or whatever other things are important to you. So yes, we are moving through a time when authoritarianism is running rampant. I think part of that is also just people have become complacent and just very docile. They've had a lot of the uh, resistance to tyranny beaten out of them, and now they just go along with what they're told. They just do what they're told. And you see this in China with lockdown still, right? There are cities in China that are still in lockdown. So it's kind of crazy that that's still happening. But I think what happened for a lot of people is they sort of took this idea of, oh, you can do whatever you want to me as long as you make me rich kind of thing. It's almost like there was this quote-unquote grand bargain um, that arguably in China happened. I mean, you could even argue that happened around the world, right? That a lot of people just said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to me. Just help me get richer or, or whatever. And then they didn't care about actual freedom. Now, you know, there's no one perfect place to go that has all the perfect freedom and all the, you know, et cetera. But I, I just think the point is look outside and think, well, actually, how could I move elsewhere? Um, that said, you know, for, for, it's not for everyone. Like, I understand that. But I think I was lucky in a way because in terms of my family moving to Australia when I was young, it was mom, dad, and my little sister. And that was it. I didn't really have any extended family in Australia. So you could also argue, hey, you know what, Stefan, that made it easier for you because you don't have a lot of extended family in Australia. So, you know, but by the same token, though, you could still do that thing that I was saying. You could go set up somewhere else that's lower tax, lower cost, something, and then, you know, fly them, you know, with that tax saving you make, fly them over to you. Um, I'm, personally, during the pandemic, I was watching Australia with rather a gobsmacked look. Uh, the procedures that were happening, the authoritarian... The government seemed to be being very authoritarian was that what it looked like from the inside oh massively yeah i mean they were literally stopping people from organizing a facebook group there was this pregnant mother in not in melbourne but in a region a little further outside of melbourne and she was organizing a protest a lock anti-lockdown protest in an area with a lower level of lockdown than melbourne at the time and she organized this facebook group and this is famous it was on like the news and twitter and everything the police literally came in and like she was pregnant and in her pajamas and they're arresting her and she had her ultrasound in like an hour, right? This is the kind of crazy stuff that was going on in Australia. 
unfortunately, the old perception of Australia being this nation of tough men like a Paul Hogan and, a, you know, Steve Irwin, that that is gone as far as I'm concerned. I think it's they all rolled over. 80% of the country just rolled over and took it, basically. They, there were so few people speaking out against the scam. And it, it now only now are we starting to see people start to come out and awake from their slumber. But I, I think it's too little too late, sadly. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that... I mean, would Paul Hogan want to do what the government does or would he or, or would he rebel is he that kind of a guy well i know he did get into a tax battle with them so oh, maybe right. he would <laughs> <laughs> so they did take him to court for about a tax battle i, I don't know the details so i don't I, i'm not saying who was right who was wrong i suppose what i'm trying to get at is um you know most people kind of look fondly upon their own government I think that's been my my experience. I was the same. They identify collectively with the government. This idea of we, right? They, right. That's what they think. But when I see, I forget who it was. One of the politicians. Um, he's I, I can't remember. Is it Dan somebody in Australia? I don't know. Dan Andrews. Right. Is is, is, is he, he was a really um, nasty guy oh, yeah. <laughs> it seemed Horrible. like. Yeah. How do how are people looking at him and going everything's okay? For example, like it, you know, because most people are by the looks of it. He has Dan Andrews is a horrible, horrible man. He has all of these sycophants on social media and these little woke lefty people who just love his every move. And so I think what happened is a lot of people were just docile and unfortunately not willing to critically think or question much of anything. And so they just bought the line. And so they believe the lie, this idea that, oh, you, you know, Everyone has to get vaccinated to protect everyone else and da-da-da. And they sort of successfully framed it in that way. Now, to be clear, they had a lot of money going their way. There were even, and this was around the world, right? I don't know, even in Canada this happened, where media organizations took government bailout money. It's hard to bite the hand that feeds. That's just the fundamental truth of it, right? It's hard for them to then now critically turn back and question their government when they're taking money from that same government. So... I think that was part of it. And I think there was a culture in Australia, at least amongst mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream media, where they didn't want to lose access to the prime minister, the premiers of the states and the, the high level people. And so if they were too challenging in their questioning, they probably in the back of their mind know, oh, I won't get to talk to this, this guy anymore. And then I'll be shut out and all my colleagues will win the story and then I won't get you know the story. So maybe that was part of what was going in their mind. Part of it, I think, is just they fundamentally were trusting and not verifying and this is like a thing in the bitcoin community this idea of don't trust verify now you know it, it depends what level you take it to but fundamentally a lot of people were just sort of rubber stamping things they were just not really cr critically questioning why are you locking down when the when lockdown was lockdown quote unquote was never a thing in any of the pre-2019 pandemic planning they had pandemic plans lockdown was never a part of them there was never this idea that you should lock down the healthy people it was crazy. It was absolute, utterly mad. And unfortunately, the media and the social media of the, the platforms had stifled, they suppressed anybody who was anti that. And, you know, those of us who were trying to speak out against it were suppressed and we paid a big social price. I mean, I arguably paid a big social price too. I was, I was speaking out against lockdowns in late March 2020. Right? So I was saying, no, guys, stop the hysteria, right? And I was posting on Facebook to try to at least stop the hysteria amongst my Facebook friends. But I, I copped so much heat for that. 
a lot of people thought I was a grandma killer and I was a crazy conspiracy theorist and, oh, you know, you're, you're just being selfish or you're trying to put profit ahead of people, or, you know, the typical sort of woke idiot lines. And so that was part of my decision as well. I just thought, you know what, it's not just about the government, it's also about the culture of the place you live. If the culture of the place you live is on the way down, you can be sure that the government is doing, going to do that too because, hey, quote-unquote, we, it's collective. It's we, we chose to do all this stuff. So, Do you think that um, lockdowns could ever happen again? Good question. I think probably yes. I think, sadly, yes. I don't, I, you know, obviously, I don't like that. But I think if they whip the public up into enough fear, they'll accept whatever. You know, it's like that saying, don't let a crisis go to waste. I think, it, sadly, we're stuck in that world. So those of us who are freedom and liberty-minded have to do what's necessary to protect ourselves. And if that means having other alternatives, plan B this, plan B that, yeah, it's costly too, right? It's not free to do these things, but is the cost worth it above a certain level of net worth, certain level of income? Yeah, probably. Um, you mentioned this in your article for Bitcoin Magazine, um, that um, the, the large elephant in the room with regards to many of these things is the government. And um, even in the Bitcoin world, one of the main questions you get asked from people that don't know much about it is, well, what if the government stops it? Um, with, with free cities and these kind of things, it's probably more relevant. I mean, we both know you can't stop Bitcoin. So, so that's, that question's off the table. You can do a lot of things to it, but you can't, you can't stop it. Um, with free cities and um, this idea, yeah, it's, it's more possible, I would imagine, to, to put a stop to those kind of things. Is that anything you spoke to anyone about uh, at the conference or do you have any ideas on that? I mean, I know, I'm sure the, the standard answers are this idea that you have a third-party court outside of that jurisdiction. Um, you, you might yeah, be able to get some kind of recourse in that way. Like I understand that's kind of the, the, the standard you know, answer in terms of the free private cities. But uh, yeah, that's part of it. I think also it's just driving competitiveness amongst states is also a good thing. So I mentioned in my article as well, I think they're all additive. All of these things help each other because as an example, the more flag theory people out there doing their flag theory thing, the more competition governments will have to uh, be under. They'll, be, they'll face that competitive pressure. And the, a good example here would be, look at how many countries around the world now have a digital nomad program. Now, for all the criticism of digital nomads, there are a lot of countries out there deciding, hey, you know what, we need to lean into this. Let's have a digital nomad program where we allow people to come here and spend their money, right? They're spending their money in the local country to give jobs. Is that an official thing, a digital nomad program? Can you to go be clear, it's not always called that. In some cases, it's called a different thing. But for example, Bali has one. Um, what, is that? Yeah. what is it then? Basically, it's like a residence permit. It's a temporary residence permit normally for one or two years based on certain conditions. You might need to show a certain level of income or a certain level of assets. And basically, the government is giving you a permit to go and stay there. Now... Additionally, in some cases, I understand that some of these countries will even give you low taxes in the time you're there. So they're sort of understanding, hey, you know what? What, what if I get some of these high skill workers to come to my country, spend their money at my restaurants and bars and whatever, and so the locals get jobs? Now, they may put certain conditions on these programs to say you're not allowed to take a local job. That's the main thing. They might say 
look, Tim, you're allowed to come and stay here, but you may not take a local job. You need to have your income coming from outside or you have your net worth already from outside and you're just spending here, right? That, that, and that's more like a retiree case. And then there's kind of the younger, I'm still working and earning, but from outside the country and I'm spending it here locally. And are those, I've not heard of those before. Are they new things purely based around the fact that people now do that, that people take a laptop and go and work anywhere they want? I would say some of these programs existed pre the digital nomad phenomenon, but now we're seeing more countries acknowledge that reality and also do that and say, hey, we're going to also offer that kind of program because we see the benefit. So it's not a perfect thing again, right? But there are more and more countries. Like if you search digital nomad visa or digital nomad residence on search engine, you'll probably find at least 20 or 30 programs around the world. Now, like I said, they won't all be called this. They might be called something else. They may be called virtual working program visa or, you know, temporary worker visa or something like this. But a lot of countries have it now. And so this is something that people can be doing as part of their whole flag theory thing as well. Um, I should ask you this question because you're... um a Bitcoiner. Um, do you think uh, free cities can work without Bitcoin in the long run? Good question. Maybe, but it sort of, it really depends how like the narrative goes, right? So if the narrative is, oh, look, you free private cities, you're enabling, because the narrative will be, oh, look, see, you're enabling all these money launderers and drug criminal, terrorists, whatever, they're moving here, we need to shut you down. Well, funnily enough, that I'm not so sure that's one of the, the main attack vectors because in um, Prospera, it's not been that. It's, right. been, it's been, you're coming, I mean, Europeans are coming here and buying our land and, make, and taking it away from us. That was that was the gotcha. what, the I mean the problem with Prosper is it was the the idea of the ZA's these right. zones that was they were grant. selling sovereignty or they were diminishing the sovereignty of the local country. Yes, uh, and yeah. and the government that allowed them to do it um, when then lost to the next government. Now the the new government is saying, look, that government sold out our nation to these people that seems to be the main attack vector yeah. which you can understand very easy to to, to, to make that argument yes. and to a very collectivist minded people it's easy to make that argument so certainly that's out there too and so i mean you could say now to be fair against that in that particular in that particular case you could say look bitcoin didn't really help there right because at that point it was more about the culture it was more about the mindset of the people in the country of hondurans who maybe believed that idea that quote-unquote we collectively own this land it doesn't matter even if it's going to make us poorer to ha to not have these free private cities set up here or the zs set up here we just don't want them what do you do right um so let's put it this way bitcoin can't hurt you right it's not going to hurt you having alternative money uh generally speaking uh but there are other cultural hurdles and barriers that have to be faced but you know what? I'm sure it's the same kind of thing that was being fought in terms of slavery abolitionists, right? I'm sure there were people saying, "Who's gonna, you know, who's gonna pick the cotton, right? Without my slaves, who's gonna, you know, that would that that would be the kind of argument they made." And so, it's on libertarians and free private city people to try to push against that and help show actually there's a there's a big benefit to the country, there's a big benefit to the people by having these things. With regards to Bitcoin adoption in general as well, you, you've probably spoken to 
because you've got such a you know an important Bitcoin podcast, you must have spoken to almost everyone who's connected with anything to do with Bitcoin. As far as adoption goes, what's your overall impression of the toughest hurdle that Bitcoin adoption has to go through? Or it's, has already gone through, possibly? I think it might just be inertia, right? Like, assuming, like I, if I was kind of in my little bubble, I could sort of be like, oh, look, it's KYC, AML laws, or it's this and that. Like, I think fundamentally, it's just inertia. A lot of people don't understand where their money already is right now, right? Their money right now is probably in some retirement account that is invested in government bonds and like random equities that that person has no idea about. Or maybe it's in some property REIT, some property trust thing. They have no idea. If we could stop that inertia and get more and more people to understand Bitcoin as this parallel system, that would really move the needle massively. Um, yeah. I suppose the, the problem I see then is the same problem we spoke about earlier in Australia and around the world. Um, most people don't care. You know, I, I, I think this is, a, this is a problem during lockdowns. Most people don't care. Just, all right, lock me down as long as it sorts the problem out um, with yeah. Bitcoin, you know, all right. You know, because this comes back to the main idea of Bitcoin and Bitcoiners being this intransigent minority. It's this idea that even Corey from Corey Clipston from Swan has spoken about this, and that's kind of like a company mission of Swan is this idea that we need to grow the base of Bitcoin holders and people who will go and fight for it. Maybe they go and speak at a town hall, or they'll go and teach people about Bitcoin. They'll encourage their family and friends. We need to grow that base of people, and individually in your own little countries you might be small but globally summed up i think it's a force to be reckoned with and that's this whole idea of growing that parallel economy so i think that's why i believe bitcoin is the best shot at liberty it's going to it's it's the best chance to substantially defund and right size the government or at least make it smaller right when i say right size i mean of course ideal would be zero but let's make it as small as we can so you know bitcoin and i think Fundamentally, what allows these governments to do what they do is cheap debt. So think of it like this, right? If they have a lot of bag holders who are willing to hold government bonds and government currency, that's more bag holders that the government can print and dump on. And so if more people understood the dynamic there and said, hey, you know what? Instead of holding government bags, I'm going to hold Bitcoin. That's going to create a lot less, you know, it's going to start tipping the scales eventually once you get enough people it's going to tip the scales over and make it more difficult for governments to have cheap debt financing, which also means they can't afford these massively authoritarian and big state programs. What if, though, um, this is as many Bitcoiners as we're going to get? What <laughs> well, if? Yeah. I, I mean, what if, in the same way that there are a lim there were a limited number of freedom lovers, yeah. obviously, during the pandemic, um, what I notice about the Bitcoin community is the information signal is very very pure we had a lot of information within a few months of the pandemic starting we had bitcoiners saying xyz which all transpired in the end um what if we're just a minority and so be it how do we live that's a fair it? question and you know what like i think you're right there is some aspect there where you know we have to allow that possibility i I just think fundamentally people are going towards the hardest money over time. And I, I think that's, you know, like our friend Safetyn with the Bitcoin standard, it's this idea that it's the hardest money. People will adopt it and it's, you know, as Safetyn says, they're not going to adopt it just like, oh, because it's the iPhone, it's the cool latest new technology. They will adopt it like gunpowder or nuclear weapons or nuclear energy because they have to. 
because you just, you know, you need this technology. People who are using this technology are at a massive, massive advantage to people who are not. And so I obviously right now, you know, Bitcoin is down in terms of the overall, uh, you know, all time high. But people who have been long time stacking with Bitcoin and transacting with Bitcoin have done very well. So I think that's where it comes down to. And I think, yes, right now, you know, we're having this, you know, crypto clowns get wiped out, washed out, you know, bankrupt. The fraud is getting exposed, all of that. But that's the new base. And so I understand. And I think what happens is during a bear cycle, people get overly bearish. And during a bull cycle, they get overly bullish. And I think right now it's it's just people have this very bearish mindset around Bitcoin when fundamentally this is actually the great, this is the time when new Bitcoin maxis and Bitcoiners are being minted. This is the time that people are going to start getting into it. And now they've got a nice low entry point relative to what it was a few years ago or a year or two year ago. And so I think this is like the adoption is going to keep continue going. You know, I think it's like people not choosing to use the internet or the email. Like email didn't have a bear market, right? Like it, it, people just used it because it was a better technology. And I think it's the same thing. With, with the technology being built out with Bitcoin, we're seeing improvements, things like the Lightning Network being more reliable, faster, and arguably more private over time with new technology coming. So I think it's all getting better. It's it's actually just a, a, a matter of teaching people and trying to find them when they're ready. Because sometimes you talk to somebody and they're just not ready, right? It's like that saying, when the, t- when the student is ready, the teacher appears. A lot of the students are just not ready. They haven't had enough pain yet, sadly. I think a lot of people will have to learn through pain. And so whether that's pain coming from inflation or from being shut down, it's coming. And so the task of Bitcoiners is to try to be there and be a helping voice and you know try to restrict our little, ah, we told you so sort of aspect of it and be more helpful and constructive and say, okay, yeah, look, sorry for your loss. I know you got wrecked on that shit coin or in that fiat currency or in the government bond, but... Here's the alternative. Here's what you can do now. You know, set up this Bitcoin wallet, learn to run your Bitcoin node, learn to be self-sovereign, and here's some people you can transact with and either earn money or spend money, right? And so even with Swan, we have bitcoinerjobs.com. It's a great, it's a site where people can go and post up their jobs that they want or apply for jobs. And these are Bitcoiner jobs. So that's one example. So I think it's just trying to grow the ecosystem in whatever way we can and just be, be ready for them when they get hurt and offer them our better alternative. Um, you say when they get ready, it's, it, I mean, I think in the end, as authoritarianism grows, in the end, everyone gets on the wrong side of the authoritarians. There's, there's, there's no one left in the end. So arguably, yes. Um, going back to your point that people will choose the best money over the long term, um, which we obviously think is Bitcoin, or we know is Bitcoin, I would say. Um, what if they think the best money is a central bank digital currency? <laughs> It's quite quite possible. It's yeah. I mean, look, people could believe it, but over time, we all know where that's going. We know the inflation well, is coming. Go, drill know. down on that then. Where are, I, I know, tell me what you know about CBDCs. Sure. So, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. There's been a lot of talk about this recently in the news, in the social media, etc. Basically, we can think of this as a control coin or surveillance coin controlled by the government. And the funny thing is, people just latch on to things in the same way in 2015 they said oh i don't like bitcoin but blockchain technology oh look how good that is it's the same kind of thing it's the same kind of people who are saying oh i don't like bitcoin but cbdc's oh i like where that's going right and so they have this idea that somehow 
it's offering like, oh, it's digital money, not recognizing that the money we that people most people are already using is already digital. It is already numbers on a bank account database somewhere transferring from someone's bank account to the other person's bank account. That's all it is. It's just that with central bank digital currencies, central banks will have a lot more fine-tuned control. They can do things like give you some money that expires in six months. So they can do all of their crazy demurrage ideas and say, oh, look, Tim, if you don't spend this $1,000 in six months, it disappears. So therefore, I'm quote-unquote stimulating the economy. It will allow all kinds of crazy economic ideas that we know to be dumb, but people will run the experiment and they're going to learn. Now, these kinds of experiments have already been run in the quote-unquote crypto land. There are uh, fork coins of Bitcoin like Frycoin and some of these other coins that have like demurrage or other things attached to them. But more importantly, they will start coding the central bank digital currency or the control coin to only allow expenses on things they want. So as an example, even today, this kind of thing exists in America with, I believe it's called EBT. So it's like a welfare card or money and that person may only spend that EBT money or dollars at EBT shops. So they, and there's certain things they're not allowed to buy. So it's the same kind of idea, but just expanded to everybody. So these new control coins may stop people and whatever vices or whatever things they want, whatever the state says is not a good thing, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or whatever, or meat even, right? If they say you've been eating too much meat or you're not allowed to fly, you plebs, right? They'll say us plebs, we may not fly, but they, the elite, or they, the, um, the vultures and the, uh, you know, people of society uh, who fly around to Davos forums in their private jets, oh, they're allowed, but us normal people are not allowed to fly, right? That's the kind of thing. So sooner or later, if you haven't been financial ca- financially cancelled yet, you will be. If you haven't been inflated, you will be. So fundamentally, people will see central bank digital currencies or control coins or surveillance coins going down in value, and they'll see Bitcoin going up. It's an obvious choice, in my view. If they're programmable, though, presumably you won't be able to, there'll be no on-ramps to Bitcoin from CBDCs. So you won't be able to buy Bitcoin with a CBDC. How do, how do we mitigate that then? Potentially. I mean, there might be some people who earn and spend it like a shitcoin, right? So they might sort of say, okay, I'm going to, you know, uh, but that's also an indicator of why you, you got to get out into Bitcoin earlier, right? Um, and so for some people, they may just have to earn Bitcoin directly. Right, if they've been trapped inside the inside the control coin system, and they need a way out, well, then maybe they've got to leave the country, or they've got to start earning in a parallel system. Right, they might start doing services and just earn in Bitcoin and spend Bitcoin, because that's the kind that's the money that you can actually spend. And speaking of um, Czech Republic and Prague, I know um, from chatting with some of the Czech people, they were telling us during the you know communist era. They actually had different money that they needed to go buy good things, right? So they had the money that they could uh, that they could spend on food and certain things. But if they wanted like a nice pair of jeans or things like that, they needed to go and find a different kind of money. And it's the same kind of idea. Bitcoin is going to be that better kind of money that you can buy anything you want with it. Whereas with the control coins, you can only buy what the state lets you. So maybe the um, maybe the CBDC ecosystem and the Bitcoin. Bitcoin ecosystem will just live alongside each other then. I mean, I, 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 I mean, most people say CBDCs are coming. Um, we know how powerful they'll be. They'll probably be combined with some form of UBI to get you hooked on, on them. Here's some free money, but only if you have it in this wallet. Um, are you, I mean, this is how authoritarianism scales. This is, this is how it really scales. 
it, you know, in the past, we've, we've seen it scale to only a certain point before it collapses. But with CBDCs, I actually feel that this is how ultimate control on a very large scale is implemented. Um, I don't know whether that's something you agree with. If it is, are you positive about the future? How do you see the future unfolding? So firstly, I mean, yeah, we're talking, we're talking about the CBDCs. But in practice, I don't know how feasible it'll be sometime soon. Because a lot of the talent doesn't want to work on this kind of thing. They would rather go work on the free stuff, as in the freedom-enabling stuff. And so governments will have to wrestle with a lot of this back and forth, right? Because here's the thing. If they want to cut out retail banks, they need to also provide their own customer service and support centers. And it's not a, it's not a simple thing to just switch on a CBDC because there'll be someone who lost their password or someone who whatever. that They need to reverse a transaction. And they need, you know, they need someone to call and they need a call center. They need... They need a whole set of infrastructure to do this. And so I don't think it'll just be that simple as just flicking the switch. Yes, there are talks about trials and so on, and they will eventually come. But the opportunity now is to get people into Bitcoin that we can, whoever we can, um, the ones who are ready. And, well, Bitcoin is already ready. It's, an opera- it's a system that's operating already, and it really is ready. Um, you know, arguably it can still do with a bit of tweaking on the second and third and fourth layers or whatever, but but it works. We've been using it for many years already um, between our friends and, and people that know it works. So, um, okay, well, I, I, I can, I, I feel like that's been a phenomenal conversation. Um, I, I just want to ask you what, one final question. This is a question we ask all our guests. Um, I'm interested to see what your answer might be. Um, I want you to imagine a hypothetical situation where you are granted a one-year sabbatical from your current life, during which everything's paid for, don't worry. You don't have to worry about your family, your travel expenses, where you live, what you do. So you've got this year. Um, What do you choose to do in that year? Good question. I don't think I've got any off the top of my head. I mean... I'm kind of already living like the life that I want to, that I, you know, within reason, I'm living the life that I want to be living, that I'm doing the advocacy and doing the projects that I want to do anyway, uh, because I, I'm already working more directly in the Bitcoin world. I guess if I was still in a more of a fiat job, then yeah, it would be something, go get more focused into Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, within the world of Bitcoin, there's all kinds of things that, you know, could be done or could be improved. You know, onboarding pathways, uh, explanation to people about why fiat currency is so bad, uh, improving things in terms of investing in the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, maybe maybe it would be kind of like sit down and write out a book or something like that. Like uh, maybe that would be something I could do. The, the, I mean, we get a myriad of answers, but... Um the best answer I would imagine is that I've asked myself the same question and there's only a few tweaks I'd make. And I think that's often a sign that you're on the right path if that's the situation you're already in. So congratulations to you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You you beat the system (laughs) currently. Well, anyway, uh, thanks Stefan for your time. And um, I look forward to hearing you talk at, um, we're in um, El Salvador at the moment. There's the adopting Bitcoin conference starts tomorrow. So, Um, I'll look forward to listening to you then. Well, thank you for having me.